Father, thank you so much uh, for your word as we, as we gather to read from it and as we gather to glean from it. I pray that it would be more than just Bible study. I pray that we would get more than just facts, but that we would receive from your truth and we would receive wisdom unto salvation. Lord, thank you that your word gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. Thank you that as we seek you, that we become more like you, that we start to reflect you. And Father, I pray that as we come closer and closer to your word and as we reveal it, or we, as you reveal it to us, may we avail ourselves to it in a way that causes us to not only hear the word, but to do it, to respond to your grace, to worship you in truth and in spirit, and then also uh, to be a conduit through which you can reach this world. Lord, thank you that you choose to use broken vessels and that not one of us has anything to offer you except for our lives. And Lord, thank you that those lives are the ones that you gave us. Thank you that you are the one that makes our hearts start to beat. You're the one that gives us air to breathe. Father, as I look at creation, I thank you for the way that you take care of us in such a mighty way. And yet so many people, can, they attribute your works to the works of luck and chance. And Lord, I thank you that our lives are more than mere chance. And so I pray tonight as we avail ourselves to your word, that we would see you high and lifted up as the writer of the book of John said, that when Jesus is high and lifted up, that he draws all men into himself. So Lord, draw all men unto yourself. Lord, draw us to yourself in a way that causes you to get the glory and for us to get the benefits as you've made us so many precious promises. Lord, may we take hold of those. Uh, But Lord, it's just my desire to thank you for your goodness towards me. And I pray that you bless this Bible study to the nourishment of our, our lives, Lord, as we pray for food and we thank you for food. May we also be just as thankful for the the Word of God, the the bread of life that you've provided for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we turn to Mark chapter 6, what we have is we've been going through this, and uh, actually, Marcus, could you bump me up a little bit? I think my, uh, it's channel 7 or something. I don't know. One of those channels. Thank you. Well, last week, Mark spoke of the return of the disciples from their first missionary tour that Jesus had sent them on. And when they returned, they were excited and they were speaking to Jesus about the things they had done and the things that they had taught. We focused on the fact that they were only able to speak and to do the things that they did because they were not only sent by Jesus, but they were also empowered by him. They were given uh, the commission to go, and they were also given them, given them the authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick. And, uh, and so they also went and they preached the kingdom. And as they returned, excited and bubbling over with stories about how they were able to be used, Jesus took them with him to what was usually a deserted place because they had just been used greatly by God. And so he took them to a deserted place to get rest. Oftentimes we think that if we're walking with the Lord that we don't need any rest, but the true fact of the matter is that we do need rest. We find rest in Him positionally, but our bodies also wear out because of sin in the world. And so because of that wearing effect that our lives have on us, whether it's by a hot day, or whether it's by spending time encouraging people, or whether it's when we're down, we always need to find true rest and hope in Jesus. He needs to be the source through which we get the, the energy to do our life, to live our life, to please and honor Him. So 
to find that rest, they, they wanted to find that rest in the Father, which is why they went to the deserted place in the first place. And in order to find that rest in the Lord, number one, we must leave all distractions to do that. And that's why they went to this deserted place. But as they got there, there was people everywhere. They had gone ahead. They knew where Jesus was going. And so they wanted to be where he was. And I kind of made the, you know, the, the little devotional thought, if you will, that may we know where Jesus is going to be so we can go ahead of him and meet him there and be ready to receive from him. May we be the type that would look for where Jesus is going to be and then be there. So, but sometimes in that quiet rest that we seek, oftentimes our our lives are too busy to get it. And sometimes it's because we just need to shut some things off and just be with the Lord. Other times it's because those things are those things that he's given us. And though that they're there, we need to find rest and peace, even though there's chaos around us. We find rest and peace and joy surrounded by all the distractions and we kind of find our rest in him right there in the midst of it and sometimes we don't get a reprieve from the noise of this world sometimes we don't even get that opportunity that doesn't mean that God's not on the throne that doesn't mean that he can't provide us rest in the midst of it that just means that life is life and that there's lots of things that we have to deal with but we have to remember that we're just pilgrims we're on this march seeking for a kingdom whose builder and maker is God And so, just like Abraham, we walk through this life as pilgrims. We're not supposed to be comfortable necessarily here. So as we are with Jesus and we find our true rest in Him, these disciples are in the same spot. So when they're surrounded by the ever-present crowd once again, this is from last week still, the multitude, Jesus is moved with compassion. He heals many who are sick. He teaches the crowd concerning God the kingdom of God. And when it's late in the day, the people are hungry, and Jesus uses the opportunity to teach the disciples to feed his sheep. Everybody calls this story the feed of the fi- feeding of the 5,000, but we looked at last week that in Matthew chapter 14, it actually mentions that it was 5,000 counting the men. And so we kind of can make an estimate in our own minds. It doesn't say the exact number, but even if there's just one wife and one child for each person, That makes 15,000 at the very least as a conservative estimate. And so that being what it was, they fed quite a multitude. But what what they learned in that instance was not so much that they were supposed to be the ones to produce bread. It's that they were supposed to take what they had, give it to Jesus, let him break it and bless it, go to him, receive from him what he's given, and then go make lanes of service for the 12 to go feed the 5,000. Now, even with 12 people handing out bread, imagine feeding just 5,000. We'll just take it at face value. And that's quite a bit of mouths to feed. That's quite a bit of time to expire yourself and just push and push. And even to walk amongst a crowd that big, you can imagine they'd be completely exhausted. But once the bread supply that they had was exhausted, they were just simply supposed to take that basket, go back to Jesus, get more bread, and then go back and feed the people. They, didn't, they weren't in the business of manufacturing. They were in the business of handing out. And that's what you and I are called to do. We're not called to come up with truth. We're called to know God's word, to feed on it ourselves, let it become part of who we are, and then to go, once we've been partakers, to go and feed out of the overflow those that don't know the Lord so they can taste and see that the Lord is good. And then maybe, just maybe, They might come to know him personally, not just for the bread that he offers, but for the the God that he is. 
And so they all ate and they were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments of the fish. That's what verse 42 and 43 said last week. I love that verse. It says they, they all ate and they all were filled. They took up 12 baskets full of fragments of the fish. God so often does that for us. He doesn't just give us enough to feed us, but he gives us enough to make us full, first of all. And that word there for full just means that they were satisfied. Do you find yourself satisfied in the Lord or do you need something else? That's the true measure because when we're satisfied in the Lord, we find contentment. Paul told Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. It means that you don't have to search for your next fix. It means that you're satisfied in Him. And so because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, you'll never hunger again. You'll never thirst again. Now, will we be thirsty physically like I am right now? Absolutely. We'll need another drink of water. But the reality spiritually is that we won't be hungering and thirsting for things that promise and yet won't satisfy. We'll, we'll find our contentment in Him and, and He'll provide for us as He's promised to. So as we transition from this feast that Jesus has just given, we hear that all too familiar word again. Mark has this so often. Immediately. It's a transition word. It goes from story to story. Most of the, the actual stories that we get about Jesus' life in the book of Mark are two to six verses at the most. We don't really get a whole lot. And, and it's mainly because he's showing him as a servant who came to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. many. Remember, the, the theme of Mark is service and sacrifice. And so as the true servant, Jesus Christ, comes, he didn't come and live this plush life, and that's not what it's about, but he was always relentlessly pursuing the people that he came to to the point of exhaustion. And even when he was exhausted, he showed by example that the way to become unexhausted is to renew our strength in the Lord. Isaiah says that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. And so last week we even looked at, and this week we'll look at again, that he found it in prayer, in communion with the Father. So that word immediately in verse 45. So let's go to the text finally. In verse 45, it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. We've talked about before how Jesus would depart at what seemed the most inopportune times to depart. It seems like at this point he needs to keep going with them, but they've just gotten done feeding the multitude. And we talked about the number over and over again. But here in verse 45, excuse me, in chapter 1 of verse 35, Way back in chapter 1, several weeks ago, it says that Jesus rose long before daylight and he departed to a solitary place to pray. Right after he had just finished ministering day, all day, and then into the evening he was healing multitudes, casting out demons, and they don't even give the number, which leads me to believe that there were beyond numbering the amount of people that he ministered to. So he was exhausted, he was tired. I mentioned that, that excuse me, that there that this is where Jesus found his strength. He, he, after that, he went to bed that night, it seems, but he rose way before it got light out. It was still dark in the morning. He rose to have communion with the Father to be strengthened. He knew that spending time with his Father would give him way more energy than, than sleeping. 
And so that's where he found his true rest. But this time's different. There seems to be a bit more urgency in this departure for prayer. Here in verse 45 of chapter 6, it says that he made his disciples get into the boat to go before him to Bethsaida. The word made there actually means that he invited them, but more specifically, it means that he urged them strongly. Now, if you have children and you've ever tried to get somewhere quickly, you know what I'm talking about. You know, they're like, hey, I'm not ready yet. And you're like urging them strongly, get to the car, we're leaving. We're going to leave you here. And they're like, oh, that's no problem. No, go. Get in the car. And once they finally get there, then there's like the, oh, you just want to get onto them. But it's like, they're in the car. Let's just get there, you know. But that strong urging to get in the car is what Jesus was doing. Get in the car. It's time to go. I'm not joking around. And so he compelled them or he convinced them that this would be the best. They needed to go ASAP. But my question for you is why? And that's the question I ask myself. Why? John gives us a little more insight into what was going on. Because I read this and I was like, why do they need to get in the boat? He's just going to pray and all the people are leaving. But in John chapter 6, verse 12 through 15, it gives us a little parenthetical statement. It says, so when they were filled, talking about the same instant right after they'd been filled with bread, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and they filled the 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten them. He wasn't wasting any of it. Hey, there's leftovers. Go ahead and take them. You know, you think about leftovers at home. The bread of life is just as good. It's way better than leftovers that, you know, God's leftovers got to be good. You know, they probably don't even go stale. I don't know about that. I just made that up. I, I don't know if they were stale or not. It doesn't say that. I looked up the Greek, no stale in there. But anyway, therefore, when Jesus, excuse me, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and to take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, let me ask you this question. You can answer or not. It doesn't matter. Is Jesus king? Yes, he's absolutely king. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. But, these, but not at this point. He didn't come to, to become king right now. Many people misunderstood why Jesus came the first time. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Remember last week, he saw the, the multitudes of people as sheep without a shepherd. He came to his own. And many of them received him not. But what we know is that they, these people decided, you know what? He's just fed us a meal. Let's make him our king. He knows our needs. He can relate to us. Let's make him king. But what they didn't know is it wasn't his time yet. And so they were going to try and force their way on the Son of God, unbeknownst to them. So Jesus realized the multitude were so impressed, they were planning to force him into being their king. Now, that's a good spot to be in, right? Because that's what he he's going to be the king, but not yet. And so because it, it was God's plan, but it wasn't God's method, they had to wait. And so Jesus, knowing that the crowd wasn't going to wait, they were going to come get him anyway, he departed to pray. In the, in the meantime, notice where he instructs his disciples to go. He sends them to a place called Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a word that literally means fishing house. Go to the fishing house. Now, many of these guys were predominantly fishermen. 
could you think that, you know, they, he just tried to take them to a place of rest, a deserted place where there's nothing to do. And they're like, okay, this is neat. We'll go to a fishing house. That's way better than a deserted place. There's probably fish there. We can go fishing. That's what we used to do. But we can do it for fun. We won't have to do it. But that's not why he sent them there. Remember, he said he was going to make them fishers of men. Now, oftentimes when we're walking with Jesus, things get hard. And it's very tempting to want to go back to what we used to do. We always forget all the bad stuff about our past life. We remember the good things that we used to find pleasure in. Even though if we remembered them correctly, we would remember that they never delivered. They never gave us peace and the joy that we were missing. They promised to fulfill, and sin always does. It is pleasurable for a season. Um, but it never delivers what it promises. It never delivers the peace. It never delivers the fulfillment. It never satisfies. We always want, you know, sin leads to sin. When we find our, our rest and our joy in doing something that's sinful, what it says is you're going to be satisfied in this, but what it does is it actually makes us hungry for more. It's like eating that, you know, whatever your favorite food is. And it's the, you eat your favorite food and you're like, you know what? This is going to satisfy me. You know, I, I heard one guy talking about Chinese food. I don't know about you guys, but any t- it doesn't matter how much Chinese food I eat. I can eat plate after plate after plate. But you know what? In 30 to 40 minutes, I'm going to be hungry again. It doesn't satisfy. And sin is the same way. Sin's like Chinese food. I'm not saying that Chinese food is sin, because I really like it. <laughs> I'm saying Chinese food, it, it, it kind of has the same effect. It doesn't satisfy for very long. And so because of that, we're always going to want more. We're always going to want more. And Jesus says, find your satisfaction in me. But Jesus has called them to something way better. And he's not, he's not the type to give up when it gets hard. He sends them to a place called Fishing House. But he is by no means telling them to pack up and head back to their old lifestyle. Instead, he's sending them to a new fishing hole for them to be useful as fishers of men that he is training them to be. He's not telling them to pack it up and call it quits because the crowd's trying to force them to be king. He instead is, is sending them to the next spot as planned. He's not changing his schedule because he's scared. He's not going to plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. He's got plan A and he's going to run that play because he knows it's going to be the best. So he, in the meantime, goes up to pray to seek the Father's will and not to move until he's told to move. Remember, he's seeking to do exactly what his Father sent him to do. Jesus here is being tempted to become king before it's his time at the pull of man's opinion. They want to make him king. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I struggle with the man's opinion. I care very much what people think of me. I'm tempted in that way, and it's a snare. Those who fear the Lord will be safe, but the fear of men is a snare, is what Proverbs says. So if we know that, we need to be careful. We need to be very careful because when we fall prey to man's opinion, man's opinion changes all the time. But God's does not, and so he seeks the Father. But it made me think of in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in that time of need. When you're feeling like the world or some person's opinion is trying to bend you and move you away from the fear of the Lord, watch out, but don't try to fight that thing on your own. Come boldly to the throne of grace just as Jesus did. If he prayed 
in this time of temptation, how much more ought we to pray? He was completely God and yet completely man. He had more than one up on us. But, but He withstood that temptation with the same warfare that we are to. That long-range artillery, artillery. Not trying to fight Satan head-on, but saying, Lord, You be my guard. You be my shield. You send out the fiery darts. Block me because I need help. I'm too weak to defend myself. And when we find ourselves in that place, we find ourselves in a place of rest because we know if something bad happens to us, the Lord knew it was going to happen and it's going to be for our good. And so as He protects us, as He takes us through temptation, He's the one that's glorified and we can't ever go, hey, I got through it on my own. We can say, Lord, thank You. You're my Father. You take care of me. Verse 47. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and He was alone on the land. And then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch, the night, excuse me, now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they, were, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But he immediately, he talked with them, and he said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. So verse 47 is interesting to me because it seems that this is one of the first times that these men have been three to four miles apart from the Lord, except the time that He had sent them out to preach. It seems that they're going out without their parents, basically. You know, they're going out in the middle of the ocean. And I don't know if you guys have ever gone sailing or anything. You get out in the middle of a body of water and you can't see land anymore. It's pretty stinking scary. Especially if it's nighttime and especially if you don't have your Lord with you, the guy that sent you. And so, uh, but they are for the first time that I can remember separated from the Lord, and it was his choosing. Yet, even when he is not right there with them, he's not taking his eyes off of them. That's one of the things that I noticed. The good shepherd always keeps watch over his sheep because he cares for them. He notices that they're struggling against the wind, and at about the fourth watch, which if you don't know anything about that, the fourth watch is commonly known as the hours from about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So it's not like he went up on the hill and he's like, hey, you guys go across the sea, I'm going to go take a nap. He was awake and he was watching. That's what a good shepherd does. So he was up all night watching them and it decided that it was time to head toward where they were going. He saw their need and he went to them. So in this instance where Jesus walks on the water, we get a glimpse at one of the most commonly mentioned miracles that Jesus performed. Second only to what I would think to be when Jesus turned water into wine. Everybody always mentions that one. Well, Jesus turned water into wine. They're trying to usually give a reason why, you know, wine's okay. That's fine. But uh, what I noticed is that Jesus walks on the water and everybody talks about that. But the question that popped into my mind as I was meditating on this passage was why did Jesus walk on the water instead of walking around the Sea of Galilee to get where they were going? They weren't actually going that far. They were crossing over, but I mean, this isn't like an ocean. This is a lake, basically. But my first thought was that the distance between the two points was a straight line, and so since he could walk on the water, why not, right? If we could do that, we'd save ourselves a lot of time. We're like, hey, there's a pond here, and I'm going to walk across. I want to fish on the other side. Um, but the second thought that I had was maybe his intended destination was not where they were going, but it was where they were. 
Jesus wasn't interested in getting to the destination. He wanted to be where his people were. And he saw that they had a need, and so he went to them. Now, he was sending them to another people to reach them, but he was more interested in his servants than he was in the people he was going to reach. Now, somehow in God's economy, he's just as interested in you and I going and sharing the gospel as he is in those who have never heard. He can divide his attention and show the exact same amount of care. We can't. We just don't have that ability. But that's what he does. He goes to them right where they're at. Why do we think that it's miraculous for Jesus to walk on water to get to his disciples, and yet we forget that he has already traveled and he's crossed this chasm that was way farther in order to step down from his throne in heaven, leave heaven in order to come down to us, to this earth that he has created in all of the cosmos and all of the interplanetary traveling and all the galaxies, he comes down to us, he steps down into this earth that he's created and we tainted with sin. In Philippians 2, we see this stepping down explained by the Apostle Paul. Philippians 2, chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 5 through 11 says, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now, how, do you, how many people do you know that say, you know what, I woke up this morning and I thought, I'm going to bless some people, and so in order to do that, I'm going to become of no reputation. I, I, I beg that you could probably not find many people, if any. Most people are all about building up their reputation. We want people to think well of us. That's that fear of man again. But Jesus made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bond slave and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore, because of this humbling, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus' main objective over and over in Scripture is that he leaves wherever he is in order to get to where we are and reveal himself to us in order that we may have life in him. He made himself of no reputation for you and I. Now, when you think about the, the greatness and the glory of God, I just can't help but ask myself why. But my point being is that we oftentimes go, wow, Jesus walked on the water to get to the disciples. And my thought was, wow, Jesus left heaven for me. He left heaven for me, not the Apostle Paul. He did leave heaven for the Apostle Paul. But i got to personalize it because... To be honest, I have a view of those guys and go, wow, they were like superhuman awesome. But the reality is, is they were just like you and me. But to make it more personal than that, I have to say that it's more miraculous that he would be willing to leave heaven for me. So Jesus, in the same way, goes out. Excuse me. Uh, lost my Jesus is always pursuing us so that what was lost could be restored. Remember in the garden that fellowship that Jesus and Adam had in the cool of the garden. And, and what we know is that Jesus and Adam and Eve, they, they walked in the cool of the garden and, and they had fellowship. They had unbroken fellowship. And when Adam sinned, what happened is all of a sudden they realized 
They could tell the difference between good and evil. And they covered themselves because they knew that they were naked. They were trying to cover up what they had done. And at that moment, they realized that they had sinned. when they had sinned, God asked the first question in the Bible. He said, Adam, where are you? Where'd you go? It wasn't because Adam didn't, it wasn't because he didn't know where Adam was. He was trying to get Adam to confess what God already knew. But as he comes to him, what happens is that because of that sin, they were thrown out of the garden and separated from the holiness of God. And so everything since then has been God making provisions so that man could come back into fellowship with him. And Jesus, in the same way, that's what he had done. He's trying to restore what had been lost. So Jesus, in the same way, goes out on the water in order to pursue his disciples, be with them in the midst of their very real struggle. And when he shows up, they are frightened by him. (laughs) They had never seen anything walk on water before, let alone a person that they knew. Perhaps they had all heard ghost stories before, and all at once, in their bewilderment, their minds went back to those wild tales, and they assumed the worst. But Jesus, seeing this, his first way of comfort, excuse me, his first way of comfort for them is by speaking to them with that voice of his that they had all become so familiar with. It was a calming voice. They'd been through this before, remember? They had crossed over the sea, and they were sent to the Gadarenes, and as they went, a great storm blew up and he was sleeping in the bottom of the boat and they woke him up in fear and they said Lord do you not know that we're perishing and he stood up rather than chastising them he chastised creation he said peace be still and it stopped so they knew that he could calm a storm but perhaps they didn't know that he could come out to them and calm the storm he kind of took their perception of what he could do and he blew it up so for the first time, he kind of breaks the mold because even the disciples had seen him do miraculous wonders and yet they go, okay, so this is what God can do. Okay, so this is what God can do. And then the next thing, and then every time that he does something new, their perception of him and their, their view of him becomes greater and greater. And that's what it should always do. I often hear people talk about the Lord as if he was somebody that saved him back in 1972. Well, he was the Lord that saved them back in 1972, but the reality is, is what is God doing in your life today? What has he done for you today? Are you seeking that relationship? Is he working miraculously through you and in you? Is he working practically in you and through you? Is, are you seeing him provide for your family? Are you seeking him for that job that you're looking for? Are you seeking him for direction in that next big decision you're making? And the reality is, is he wants to be just as, part of the, as much a part of that as he wants to be in that part where you're struggling in the midst of an ocean where you feel like every time you row, it's doing you no good. He wants to be for, there for us in every instance. So this is the point at which Matthew's account mentions Peter's famous step of faith into the Sea of Galilee. But since it's not in Mark's account, we'll save that for another time. So verse 51, Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves, because of their heart was hardened. I like how Nelson's commentary, I'm going to just steal an excerpt from a commentary, because guess what, I don't know everything. But I liked how they put it in a very clear fashion. They said, Three miracles are included in this brief account from verse 47 through 51. 
Number one, Jesus saw the disciples out in the storm miles away. Now, to have clear visibility on a clear night is one thing to see several miles. But in the midst of the storm, he saw them. Number two, Jesus walked on water. This is an obvious one, right? Everybody knows about this. Many non-Christians know about this story. But what I want you to notice is that present-day movies do not depict this correctly. I once watched the movie Bruce Almighty. Many of you have probably seen it. You notice how when the main character that was supposedly God walked on the water, even when it was made Bruce, he walked on the water. Did you notice? Now, there's lots of other theological problems that I have with the movie, so it's not about that. I'm not condoning the movie at all, but what I'm saying is, did you notice how when those characters walked on the water, it was completely still? When Jesus walked on the water, it was not completely still. It was in the midst of the storm. That's why he went out there to be with the disciples. They couldn't row fast enough to go to where they were going because it was so tumultuous. Number three, Jesus showed complete control over creation when the wind ceased. Ceasing the wind was one of the things he had done before and they had witnessed it. But this time he walked on the water through a storm. He has once again completely blown their minds. I already talked about that. I skipped ahead in my notes, apparently. (laughs) So anyway, verse 53. When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and they anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately, there's that word again, the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, They laid the sick at the marketplaces, in the marketplaces, and they begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. So verse 53 says, they anchored in Gennesaret. This is where Jesus and the disciples had come into contact with the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. This is also the the place where Jairus' daughter, who was 12 years old, was brought back to life. Remember with me, if you will, a couple weeks ago in Mark chapter 5, where it said in verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, speaking of the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you. And we learned a couple weeks ago, thronging just means pressed in. And you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So if this is the same region, and I believe that it is, it would make sense that when they arrived, immediately the people recognized him and they began to carry the sick about on beds to wherever he was. You see, her faith was released. She was healed. She had just touched his garment. And I guarantee that after she was healed and he called her out on it, She was like, well, everybody knows anyway. I may as well tell them what's happened. And so she went, and of course, this is all conjecture. So, you know, I won't argue with you about it if you disagree that this happened. 
But I believe that what happened is that the word spread of the mighty deeds of the Lord. And because of that, many came in and did the same thing. They said, you know what? She was healed and I believe in Jesus and I want to be healed. I'm going to go use that same touch point. So at that point, what happens is these people are coming about from every direction. And it says there at the end of verse 56, as many as touched him were made well. This woman had been healed of the issue of blood that she had for 12 years. This had started something in the minds of the people. Because of her testimony, many others used the hem of Jesus' garment as a point of contact to release their faith in him. Just by sharing the way that she had been healed of her longtime ailment made a way for others to follow the same way that she had gone in order to be healed, and they found healing in that particular way. You can probably see where I'm going with this. How much more is it important that we, like this woman, we share with others the way by which all men, as Acts says, must be saved. And if we, like this woman, would only be so excited that we have been saved and forgiven of our sin, that we would have nothing else to say except how others could experience the same peace with God and the same joy that we're given in our relationship with our Savior. You know, we've been healed. Do you know that? We've been healed of this problem called sin. Do we still struggle with it? Yes. But we've been completely forgiven in the Savior. Now, if we really had a a grip of what that means, we couldn't help but sing His praises everywhere we go. And when we do that, other people hear that message of grace, that message of, I didn't deserve it, but God did that. God left heaven and came to me so that I could be saved. And when we realize that, we we start to tell people about it because it's the only hope that we have. It's the only righteousness that we are guaranteed. And it's the only salvation that will not change. It will not fade. And when we realize that, we'll tell people. So how many people would be saved and recognize Him like those who wanted healing? Oh, how wonderful if they would beg Him, just like these people did, that they might just be touched by His forgiving grace and given a clean garment that's white as snow, completely cleansed and given new life, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. So Father, thank you so much that you did, in fact, leave heaven, come to us in our time of need, when we were struggling to to become righteous on our own or to just rebel against you and not care. But Lord, thank you that you not only give us the standard that you not only give us the commandments, you tell us what it takes to measure up, but you use the law as a tutor to point to the fact that we can't do it on our own. A way for us to be restored is in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that as we have been partakers, many of us, that we would be the biggest billboards for that grace, that we would be thankful and overwhelming with praise. And Lord, as we are, I pray that you would send us out with that message, that we would tell others that we see afflicted, I love how, I think it's Joel, the the prophet Joel says that there are multitudes in the valley of decision. And Lord, as, as I think about the multitudes in the valley of decision, I think about how many people have no idea that they are deciding to rebel against God every day because they're unwilling to accept the Savior as the, 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 the payment for their sin. And so Lord, I pray that there would be many in our area, especially as we pray down here, that you would uh, use us as conduits through which to share the gospel of Jesus Christ 
Everyone's heard about Jesus, but not many people know Him personally. So I pray that we would be a group that would know Him personally and therefore lead others to Him too. Lord, thank You for Your throne of grace that we can come to boldly. Please uh, be with us as we continue to worship and as You send us out. Lord, uh, bless our homes. Be with us during this heat. I pray You protect us all from you know, overworking the heat. Uh, but Lord, more than that, I pray that we would just grow closer to you in our fellowship with you, that we would confess things that we really struggle with, and Lord, that you'd heal us. Lord, help us not to be so prideful that we wouldn't just call out your name and, and ask for forgiveness. Lord, uh, teach us to, to love you more. And Lord, make us more like your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name.